The Russians would never break contracts like they have broken right now to Poland and broken right now to Bulgaria. The development here with the German government signing the contract and RWE taking the lead is that Germany is responding to the realities it was ignoring for many years. That's a good thing. The other thing I'd flag is that this is a 10-year contract. These uh, two uh, floating regasification facilities, similar to the one that currently exists in the port of Klaipeda in Lithuania, which is good, uh, this is going to steadily and surely reorientate Germany's energy future away from dependence on a sole source provider like Russia. That's good. The bad news is that Currently, um, Nord Stream 1, which is a existing pipeline that is running gas, uh, can provide around, off the top of my head, it's around 45 BCM, billion cubic meters a year to Germany. These regasification platforms can only provide somewhere between, I'm really trying to verify this, but it's between 8 and 14 BCM, billion cubic meters a year. So it won't cover the full delta, but it's a good Peter, start. And yeah. Is that each or both combined? I'm trying to verify this. It looks like it's combined, but uh, I'm reading while I'm talking. So I'm, I'm trying to read through the contract right now. The uh, the officially reported information about the contract. Right. Thank you. Sorry. Sorry for the interruption. Please carry on. Yeah. No, it was an important question that came up earlier. Uh, so uh, for everyone listening, this is a major development. The German government is coming to terms with its mistake and it is rapidly trying to respond. All of these things are very good. Uh, this current response is not enough to fully replace Nord Stream 1, let alone Nord Stream 2, uh, which is the main artery that Russia pumps gas into the uh, German economy. But it's an excellent start. And there are ways to overcome uh, the remainder of, of the hurdles and, and deficits that Germany could incur. And the other one that came up, in the, again, all of this natural gas news is breaking uh, overnight. Um, Poland and Lithuania have announced that they have completed their gas interconnector between their two countries. That is, again, a major development. Doman, I don't have to add much more than what you said for those, but for those who are maybe just tuning in, this means that Poland is able to move natural gas into Lithuania, and Lithuania is able to move natural gas down into Poland. And some might say, well, that sounds like a normal thing. Why don't we have this before? And the answer is, well, it's been very complicated. Uh, I would flag this danger, though. The, this natural gas interconnector between Poland and Lithuania goes through, wait for it, the Sulalki Corridor, that narrow strategic choke point between Russian-held Kaliningrad and Belarus uh, that is um, ext uh, the extremely vulnerable piece of real estate inside NATO, inside the EU. Uh, that said, uh, Domin, earlier you had asked how much capacity are we looking at? Uh, the answer is that from the Poland to Lithuanian side, for those energy nerds in the audience, uh, we're looking at 2.4 BCM a year, 2.4 billion cubic meters a year. That's pretty good. Uh, from the Lithuanian to Poland side, we're looking at about 1.9 BCM, so between 2 and 2.5 in either direction. Why does that matter? Well, right now, Ukraine needs gas flows and energy support from the West because some might have noticed Ukraine is at a, in a war with Russia. So if we can, for example, move, start moving gas from the, LN, uh, the LNG facility in Klaipeda, Lithuania, that gas can actually go through something called reverse flow capacity uh, from Lithuania, from Poland uh, into, uh, into Ukraine, and that can help uh, keep the lights on in, in Ukraine and sustain their war effort. So major developments overnight. The EU is moving to block Russian, uh, Russian oil permanently. Germany is taking major steps to 
build up its alternatives to its dependence on Russia. And uh, Poland and Lithuania are connecting the Balts and Finland into the European gas grid. All of this is bad news for Putin. We are witnessing a generational shift in how the European energy space works. And it is all happening in a matter of weeks. I've spent two decades tracking this issue. And I have to tell you, my hair is blown back so far by the speed of events that are developing. Overall, I would say it's a good direction, but I would flag this for everyone to keep an eye on as a what's next or what now. Germany could always break its promises. Uh, there is deep suspicion given uh, how bold the statements have been and how weak the actions have been on the part of the current German government. So I think we should all watch to see that the German government follows through and the EU follows through uh, with the bold proclamations that their political leaders have made. Thank you so much, Peter. Peter, thank you for that. Axel, carry it on requires with the constant, It requires constant pressure. The only thing which matters for German politics is to understand where the things go, uh, where strategy actually should be vested in, is having proper values. And they are currently seeing that their old values of appeasement, mercantilism, and uh, finding some kind of um, reasoning for their latent or evident Russophilia filtering through all politics, that has to end. They just have to look truth pragmatically into the eye and into the face. They haven't done this for a long time, which is why I've been saying that <clears throat> what Peter and I probably have both in different forums been arguing for more than two decades, actually three decades to be, to be exact, is now coming to bear. And it's the implosion of European utopianism in terms of deterrence and energy policy. There is no room for appeasement if you're facing a hostile actor. Heart dang, Axel, I completely agree. And for a little point of clarification, Peter, I've had people ask me, uh, all of those pipelines that go through Ukraine, are those all blocked? And my assumption is they are. I, my assumption is they're all, uh, you know, all, all the stuff going from Russia through Ukraine to the West has been stopped. Uh, but can you verify that by any chance? Yeah, so the natural gas, so again, we have to talk about pipelines. We have to distinguish between oil pipelines, natural gas pipelines. And this is why energy nerds next to Star Wars nerds and Star Trek nerds are the best and biggest nerds. Uh, when it comes to natural gas, the audience members might be shocked to learn that up until, I mean, a week ago, natural gas was still flowing uh, through Ukraine into Europe while Ukraine was in a war for its survival against Russia. Uh, that That's an incredible fact. Uh, but the, the gas flows currently entering Poland from Russia have completely stopped as of a week ago. Uh, and also uh, gas flows flowing from Turkey into Bulgaria have also stopped. Uh, I would flag this as significant because for, as Axel pointed out, for decades, European leaders said Russia would never do this. Russia is a quote unquote reliable energy supplier. Russia would never uh, break its contracts. And as the Polish government has pointed out, they have a contract with Russia and nothing in that contract says that they must pay Russia in rubles. By changing the game, Russia is breaking its contract and proving generations of German leaders wrong. 
The good news here, rather than spiking the football in the end zone, the good news here is that parts of the German government are rapidly responding. I would definitely give the Greens a lot of credit, and I'm the kind of guy who never gives the Greens credit for anything. But the Greens in Germany have done a wonderful job at, at standing up and saying, no, we are not going to play this game anymore. So bully for Germany, they're responding, but they're very late to this response. They, this response should have happened years ago. So that's uh, the short answer. Uh, pipeline and uh, natural gas uh, flows have stopped into Poland. Uh, Russia has shut off those uh, flows, breaking its contract, proving that it is not a reliable energy uh, partner. Uh, and uh, Europe is responding. And I, I do support and applaud the German government for the contracts it signed overnight. Now we have to see these uh, statements uh, matched by action. Exactly. And I would just like to note another thing that we've been talking about for about 10 days now, something like this, night. Um, that, that Germany has managed to make itself independent from Russian oil. And this is something that, who was it, Sergei was raising earlier, right? Both uh, ministers Habeck and Lindner, both of them have said, oh, Germany's ready to get off of Russian oil today, tomorrow. And they've said this a few days ago now. And that is a huge development. The agreement they came into with Poland to be able to use the port of Gdansk uh, together with uh, the, the smaller pipeline that leads to Rostock and Mecklenburg for Pommern to supply those refineries in the east of Germany that were hitherto dependent on Russian oil uh, to, to supply all of the east of Germany with, uh, with you know, diesel and petrol and so on. Yep, that's right. And that'll be my last point. And um, if people want to ask questions, I'll be in the space for a little while, a while, little while to answer. But um, we've had a global price for a barrel of oil since around 1890 thanks to uh, America uh, and uh, competition. But um, oil is a fungible commodity. Uh, you may recall back from your economics class, it means if you want to buy a barrel of oil, uh, you can buy it on the global marketplace and someone will deliver that barrel to you. Uh, natural gas is different. That's why it is when we talk about Europe's response uh, to Russia in this war through the energy space, it's just important for everyone to remember oil is easier to replace than natural gas. Yeah, exactly. And that's why it could be done so quickly and so easily, right? Uh, the only countries that are still dragging their feet a little bit on the oil side, if I remember correctly, obviously Hungary, obviously Hungary, uh, but also Slovakia and Czech Republic, I think, want uh, a slower transition. And there's been some talk, if I remember correctly, of Croatia and Slovenia doing likewise, but, but not being very vocal about it. Um, how easy do you think could, could it be to, to at least um, substitute the Czech and Slovak oil with other sources as well? Um, now that those ports in Gdansk, for example, are going to be running pretty much at capacity just to supply Germany. I'm closely tracking this one. Uh, the Czechs are in a different position. I'm, I was actually personally surprised by the Czech move. I was not surprised by the Hungarian move and the Slovakian move uh, because Hungary and Slovakia have been, frankly speaking, much more orientated in a positive direction towards Vladimir Putin prior to February 24th. And we're seeing some residual political effects of that. Uh, the Czechs, um, I'm actually, I don't have an answer on the oil front. I do know the Czechs invested early in natural gas alternatives from Norway. They built their own pipeline to Norway uh, just to have an alternative to Russia. So on the natural gas front, the Czechs are in a much better position to uh, uh, swap out their natural gas. I don't have an immediate answer on oil. 
I was personally surprised as an analyst to see the checks move in this direction. Uh, I would have expected the checks to um, uh, to be much more on the side of the Poles and the United States and the European Union. Uh, but uh, I'm doing some more digging into this and I might follow up with the space with some more updates uh, soon. Thank you very much, Peter. Um, yeah, I, w- I was quite surprised by the, by the Czech being included in that as well. And I'd also just like to very quickly distinguish between Hungarians, which have been um, quite, you know, bad, really bad in many respects over the past two months, and Slovaks, which outside of the question of oil have been very supportive of other EU sanctions and have contributed significantly militarily to Ukraine as well, uh, just to, to give some props to Slovaks where, where, it, where it is definitely deserved. Um, I didn't want to cause a uh, a Slovakian uprising in the space, so the, well said. No, that's that, I'm I'm tamping you down before any 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 Slovaks can come and complain. Um, and and, and there's a, no reason. There's also no reason to do it because the Slovakian uh, government has taken the right steps now, uh, say compared to its predecessors, and they've done so uh, both strategically as well as tactically. And I think that the way they are supporting the whole effort is completely different. They had just they, their dependency on Russian gas has been so deep, uh, sorry, on Russian oil has been so deep um, for reasons which we cannot even raise here at this point in time. This will change, and I think that the, uh, both the Slovakian military as well as its industrial, industrial base is very well adept at uh, changing matters now that uh, they've cleaned house a bit. Precisely, Axel, and that, that is a big change in the current Slovak government compared to the last decade of, of consecutive Slovak governments, right? Um, Peter, I have a number of questions for you uh, regarding gas that I've been sent to by listeners. Uh, Ron and Paul, if you have questions regarding uh, European energy policy, uh, feel free to go ahead in that order. If not, if you could hold back on, on your questions for a minute and we'll, talk, we'll, we'll close this out with Peter while we have his uh, you know, expert, expert thoughts here. Uh, but if it is on gas and oil, Ron? No, I'm good. I had something else. So go ahead and I'll get back to you later. Thank you so much, Ron. And Paul, if yours is on gas and oil, go ahead. It is. Yeah, I'm just trying to... Good morning, by the way. Uh, it's a question for Peter. I'm just trying to get my head around, really, the damage that this is doing to... Um, you know, this Germany news is, is a massive piece of news. And I'm wondering how it's going to be received in, in Russia. Um, not well, I'd imagine. And so I've got a comment and a question in two parts. What what is the damage that this is doing to the Russian economy, and how how long is that sustainable? And B, the cynic in me um, would love to think that <clears throat> European can, countries can permanently wean themselves off Russian fossil fuels. I, I have a doubt that they will uh, be back at some point, but I'm just wondering at what uh, you know, how long do you think we can um, stop spent you know buying Russian Russian fossil fuels? Thanks. I, I love your comment and I love your question. Um, I, I, I've got the uh, got the answer uh, right here. I was kind of expecting it. All right. So overall, Europe. Uh, so I totally agree with your comment uh, when you underscored that you know this could be very damaging to Russia, uh, and uh, but you also had some worry that maybe this was going to be easier said than done. If I could perhaps paraphrase. Okay. So um, I'm just looking at the numbers right now. Uh, I love wow numbers. As an analyst, I love I love a wow number. A wow number is literally something that you see and you go wow, and it perfectly crystallizes the problem. The EU sends 450 million dollars a day to Russia for oil, 
and $400 million a day to Russia for natural gas. Uh, and that's um, a calculation that the great analysts at a think tank in Brussels called Brugge uh, have uh, have put together. And um, AP sources it in a couple stories. Uh, if you don't follow the team at Brugge, um, I, I love their work and I, I think that's a good, good team to keep an eye on. But overall, we're talking $850 million a day. Now, when that money goes to Russia, it doesn't immediately go into a Russian armed forces bank account and they don't immediately just use it to, you know, 3D print some more T-72s. That's not how any of this works. But overall, the energy, the cash flows in exchange for energy are Russia's bread and butter. Russia is an energy state. It is a petrostate. And without petrodollars, hydrocarbon dollars flowing into Russian coffers, Ultimately, the Russian economy cannot sustain its current war against uh, against Ukraine. Think back to World War II. Uh, we found ingenious ways to win battles against Germany, but ultimately it was our ability to find those pressure points, those choke points in the German economy. Uh, in the case of Germany, it was ball bearings, believe it or not. Uh, but when you find those choke points in someone's economy and you press hard on them, you can deny your enemy the ability to sustain their war. And what we're seeing right now, if Germany and the EU can follow through, we can deny Putin $850 million a day in money that he will eventually use to kill Ukrainians with. That's very good. That's brilliant. Thank you. I mean, we all know that the only thing that the Russian state or the elites at the top or the oligarchs really care about is money. That's all that they care about. And I'm just wondering how long this is sustainable for the person at the top of the uh, uh, the gang at the minute. You're right to ask that question. Now, I would also, you know, I would also flag for this. We can do more. So right now, I would say that the EU and Germany are doing the minimum requirement. They, uh, they're doing what's minimally required of them, uh, but we can do more. And I, I continue to press on this point because like Lendlease 2.0, which was an idea I was pushing forward very hard and it's now a reality, uh, I would continue to press the United States and Europe together to institute a ban on all oil, uh, Russian oil flowing in tankers on the water. And we know how we can do this we can use the insurance. So we've already implemented similar sanctions against the Iranians. The United States did this and it was amazingly, it was amazingly effective. Essentially what you say is if uh, you are, go are going to move oil in an oil tanker, you have to insure that tanker. Somebody has to sell you an insurance policy while that oil is on the water going from point A to point B. If, believe it or not, and there are very smart people who have looked into this, there are only a handful of companies in the world that actually will insure oil shipments in tankers flowing, uh, sailing over the oceans. And so what you say is, okay, cool story, guys. Uh, if you are an insurance company and you insure a single barrel of oil in a tanker anywhere in the world, no other vessel that is also insured by your company can dock in an American or European port. Guess what happens immediately uh, to those insurance companies? They immediately pool all of their uh, insurance policies for any barrel of Russian oil in an oil tanker. And not only have we shut down the pipeline infrastructure flowing west into Europe, but we've also denied Russia the ability to move oil 
in oil tankers to other markets around the world. That would be devastating. That's the kill shot. That's what the economic kill shot. That's what must be done. So far, policymakers in Europe and the United States know about this option. They have not yet implemented it. And I think that needs to be the next step after we conclude the current positive steps that Europe, the United States, and Germany are taking. You can already, if you like, Peter, you can already uh, apply that by means of using AML, anti-money laundering restrictions, because you can tell any, uh, under the current sanctions, and I know where you're going with this, and I like it, of course, I think we both know why, but uh, can technically um, tell every insurance company and every syndicate in the London market that if they engage in insuring such oil tankers, they are essentially already to be put on the sanctions list because they are allowing to secondary market launder money, which the Russians would otherwise have to put up as collateral, cash collateral. And don't forget, whether you engage in cash or it's a securitized form or it's abstract form, it still is conducive to money laundering. So the sanctions themselves would be tough enough. It just needs some creative soul um, at the Treasury to put a dear friend letter out. Actually, you're 100% correct. And uh, for those in the audience with a business background, uh, let me say a non-controversial statement. Your accountants, uh, your risk managers, and your lawyers are going to be the most uh, nervous people in the room when we start talking about the threat of future regulatory action. And so just the threat of future regulatory action could force many companies to take these steps today without actually having to go through the legal process of passing these, these sanctions against uh, insurance companies who insure Russian oil on the water. So the threat of legal action is significant enough It is a, if it is a real threat. Uh, I like to say the accountants always win. And if we can create a real threat of, of action, uh, that could be enough to just force companies to say, you know what, we don't know if it's, this is happening or not, but we're gonna take the safe path and we're gonna pool our insurance from Russian oil shipments on tankers right now. That would be an amazing development. And again, we're using the power of free markets, our economic power to help Ukraine and uh, deny Russia the sinews of infinite money that it needs to fight this war. Thank you, Peter. I just want to say thanks for giving your time and expertise to the space as well. I think it's um, amazing. So um, thanks very much. Cheers, mate. Thank Peter, you, Paul. maybe we should get one of the Bruegel guys on uh, on the space in the coming days, because as you quite rightly say, they do uh, track details. And uh, as the devil is in the details, unfortunately, in energy policy all the time, it's probably quite useful having them there. Maybe we should just have a chat with them and bring them on whilst you're there too. Let me reach out and I'll see what we can do. I'd love to contribute and uh, assist. Yeah, that, that sounds absolutely fantastic. Um, all right, Peter, I have a couple more questions and by couple, I mean four, I think, uh, for you about European oil and gas. Uh, so if, you're, if it's all right by you, I'll just run through them and you know, do, if you do the best you can, that'd be great. Um, uh, let's do a lightning round. So let's lightning uh, round. rack and stack. Okay, question. Uh, this might be a bit too far west for your for your highest expertise, but let's go. A uh, question. I think Portugal has an LNG gas terminal in the port of Sinish, but the pipeline never crossed the Pyrenees to serve Europe because France didn't allow it. Comment? Do you know my dad asked me that exact same question last night when we were on the phone? 
Hot dang. Uh, so kudos to whoever asked that question. My dad was asking me about that as well. Uh, that is correct. Uh, short answer. Remember when I was talking about how oil is a global fungible commodity, but natural gas is a much is much more of a patchwork of regional markets and uh, connected by pipelines and physical infrastructure. That is an example of what I was saying. Uh, if you look, pull up a map of LNG terminals in Europe, you'll see a lot of these are, you know, again, the infrastructure facilities that that are needed to uh, take natural gas on the water and inject it into an economy um, through pipelines and, and trucks, frankly. All right. So uh, LNG terminals are very common along the west, uh, along the Iberian Peninsula and the Pyrenees, uh, no, along the Iberian Peninsula, also into France, et cetera. But um, the connections, the cross-border interconnections are very limited. Uh, that statement is correct, and it is one of the problems that we face when we want to, say, ship American LNG to Europe to help our friends. Uh, the, the lack of cross-border interconnector infrastructure is an inhibiting factor. That's why I flagged earlier this development with uh, the interconnector between Poland and Lithuania. That's a good thing. Thank you, Peter. Um, yes, exactly right. I also think that the port of Sinish, the LNG terminal there, doesn't really have that much spare capacity that would um, markedly uh, improve the European broader gas situation. All right, next question. Uh, quite a general question here, Peter. If you could comment on the European Union's efforts to reduce its dependence on imported fossil fuels, and also whether the Slovakians could be the Hungarians' golden bridge for retreat. Wait, the Slovakians could be the Hungarians' lonely bridge for retreat? Repeat that last part. Golden bridge to retreat. Uh, whether they could, um, you know, the, the, the Slovak need for Russian oil, could it be a way for the Hungarians to kind of, you know, obfuscate their own position a little bit here? Let me, let me, yeah, no, it's, it's a sophisticated question. Um, I'm pausing to provide a, an appropriate answer. Um, because oil, this is my answer. Because oil is a fungible commodity, you can purchase oil somewhere in the world and have it delivered to your refinery or you know, your, your, your economy. A lot of these relationships were built up over decades, these energy relationships. And as I've said before on this space, as I've written before, now is the time for choosing. Countries like Hungary and Slovakia, but certainly Hungary, must choose what civilization do you want to be a part of do you want to be a part of russia's war criminal genocidal kleptocratic civilization or do you want to be a part of our civilization there are atlanticists in hungary i would stress this i know everyone likes to focus on victor orban and and, and what he says and does there are strong atlanticists in hungary who want to be part of europe's civilization of our western shared community and um, now is the time for choosing there are alternatives it simply requires political will and assistance from friends and i look very carefully to see the hungarians make the right choice in this civilizational question and not the wrong one and as always the atlanticists are on both sides of the aisle especially in hungary very true and very well said, Alex. Uh, Axel. Yes, very good. Um, uh, thank you, Peter. I was going to read out Jerry's question next, but he came up to ask it himself. So, uh, Jerry, please go ahead. Hey, thanks, Tom. Hey, uh, Peter, uh, LNG is a dry cargo. In other words, it, it, it's, it's pure, nearly pure methane. Uh, that is uh, about 750 BTUs per cubic foot in the American parlance. 
uh, and that's below the American spec. Uh, what are, what what's, what's taking place in the ethane front? Uh, ethane is a constituent gas or a constituent element uh, to boost that uh, 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 you know that product to uh, a, a, a European spec, as well as feed the uh, the polyolefin market as a feedstock. Oh man, that is a fantastic question. Um... All right. So uh, I'm always very open with what I know and what I don't know. Uh, I, I understand your question. I know just enough uh, to answer your question to get myself in trouble and say something wrong. <laughs> so uh, and, and maybe confuse the space. Uh, and uh, if you'd like to share a bit more of your experience, I'd be very interested in learning. Uh, but you are absolutely correct. And, you know, that's the thing about the energy markets. And uh, these are extremely complicated engineering and chemical processes that we're dealing with. And uh, I know enough to say, I don't know the answer to that. And that's one of the answers uh, that I just can't ex uh, answer expertly. Well, let me just add a little bit of color uh, and a little bit of background. I, I built a, uh, a company that supplied uh, liquefied natural gas uh, to the ag market. And uh, what our process was, was simply just uh, uh, buying uh, LNG from local peak shaving operations, that is, uh, liquefaction. Uh, 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 you know, methane storage <laughs> operations uh, for utility companies in the Midwest and supplying them to uh, uh, to run equipment, dry corn, you know, heat turkey barns, that type of stuff in the Midwest, uh, U.S. Uh, so fairly uh, experienced with uh, both production of uh, liquefaction of and, uh, and regasification, the same. Uh, obvious, but not obviously to anyone. When you... Uh, it, uh, there are several components uh, to uh, natural gas. There's methane that comprises the largest volume component and the largest uh, energy component. Then there is ethane, which is uh, a uh, is usually about uh, you know 15 percent of the uh, of uh, the net, your natural gas stream. And then there's you know trace elements of uh, butane and propane that also travel in the pipeline under pressure. And that's managed very carefully uh, inside the pipeline uh, because each of those elements will liquefy at a specific pressure. They'll turn into a liquid at a pressure and it makes it difficult to transport, as you can imagine, uh, in a gas pipeline. So uh, when LNG is produced uh, at, a at a liquefaction train, uh, it is uh, all those other elements are separated out. And uh, pure methane is then uh, liquefied, stored, transported onto ship, uh, taken to a regasification facility, regasified as methane, and now you have pure methane in the pipeline. You have to add uh, ethane, or you might add butane or propane to boost the energy content within uh, that measured uh, volume of gas. Uh, and... Uh, uh, so, uh, also ethane is uh, it, it, in the productions of plastics, uh, high density polyethylene, low density polyethylene for your shopping bags, that type of stuff. Uh, ethane is extracted along with methane, uh, it, you know, into a production plant, and under steam, it is uh, and pressure, it is uh, it is turned into basically into the feedstock for plastic. Uh, so isn't it cool it, though that that yeah. a lot of these market functions were either invented, developed, or refined in the United States, 
uh, and uh, and other countries certainly had a role, but uh, we we are now using a lot of the technology that uh, has been invented, refined, and de or developed in the U.S. Uh, and we're using that to help our friends in Europe. And I, I really I take I take a step back sometimes, and I'm humbled uh, by how uh, you know market pressures in the U.S. over decades are now coming into play uh, to help our friends. And I, I think you're absolutely, you're absolutely right when it comes to that description. Uh, it could be a little bit over the heads of, of some of the folks here, but this is why we have this space so that people can learn about things that they never really knew about um, and focus on the matter at hand, and that is helping Ukraine. Uh, and when it comes to those questions, you know, what we're looking at is the United States has tremendous, and we still do, natural gas resources that we can put into very big, you were correct. Uh, I'll call them freezers uh, on the Louisiana and South Texas coast, put them onto ships and get these ships to Europe uh, and help Europeans get off of their dependence on Russia uh, for energy, for plastic bags, for fertilizer, for you name it. Uh, this is a good thing. And uh, I would just stress this should have happened a very long time ago. It's happening now. Let's move quickly under wartime conditions and with a wartime attitude. Well, let's not forget our friends at Cold Point, Maryland, uh, who've turned oh, an import well, terminal. Oh, of course. All right. Uh, thank you so much. I'm here in Virginia, so I, I've actually been there. So you are yeah. correct. Yeah, friends and, of mine. Uh, Jacksonville. And Jacksonville. Uh, correct, correct. Uh, Savannah as well could be. But uh, so to you know, continue further with the question is, okay, so let's say we supply uh, LNG. There is still uh, a necessity to, to supply that other constituent element to boost the BTUs uh, so that when gas arrives to your home to, you know, boil water for pasta, uh, it, uh, it, it arrives, uh, you know, you know as, as hot as you wanted it, as you, you've expected it in Frankfurt or uh, Stuttgart or uh, uh, other places. Uh, Russian gas is typically a wet gas. In other words, it has a lot of those other elements to it. It has a lot of ethane to it. I think it's almost 20%. Uh, it has uh, you know, quite a bit of butane in it. It's a, it's a wet gas. Uh, so uh, the question I have is, is okay, how do we boost the, uh, 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 how do we boost, how do we inject these other constituent elements into the feed stream uh, if we're shipping it across the, uh, you know, across the Atlantic? Uh, it, it's not undoable. Certainly, uh, you know, ethane, for instance, is literally being flared into the atmosphere or burned away into the atmosphere in North Dakota, in the Bakken region, the Permian Basin, other high frack zones uh, because of the fact that, well, well it, it, there's no, uh, there's not enough market for it and there's not enough pipeline to carry it away. Okay. So uh, certainly the U.S. could do more if there's a if there is a deficiency of these ethane stocks, uh, the U.S. could provide a significant boost to that. Of course, it would take a yeah, it takes production uh, facility, uh, but uh, uh, ethane is is remarkably uh, simple to transport. Um, if it is, uh, I'd look to Chenier and Terillion uh, to uh, uh, to answer those questions. If I had those questions, I would look to them because they're 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 pushing a lot of the uh, uh, LNG on the water. Right. They 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 receive they receive stocks, uh, you know, of LNG 
you know, in its uh, you know typical U.S. form, uh, the 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 companies that really need to step up to be able to print to uh, transport away uh, ethane uh, would be companies like One Oak or um, oh, who are those other guys? Uh, <laughs> I want to say Energy Partners. Uh, Marcel's, uh, these folks would have to step up in order to be able to, uh, you know, transport that higher value ethane away. Uh, there's other means by which it could be taken away. But the, the remarkable uh, irony here is we are literally flaring away the very fuel uh, that could, if, if there is a shortfall, that could uh, help uh, close the gap. Uh, Every time I see a flare, a gas flare, and for everyone listening, you can you just imagine a, a giant you know, six foot, three foot flare. <laughs> it makes it, I get that little tear in my eye uh, because it's just wasted energy and carbon into the atmosphere that uh, will never be recovered. Uh, Doman, before we turn uh, this space into uh, the energy nerd's greatest. Uh, it, refuge, it is, it is the energy nerd. I won't allow it. No, 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 not, not my watch. Over to you, Ferlaine. It was a joke. Uh, it's good to hear uh, you, Peter. Uh, can, can I just inject? Is is there uh, anybody who is, has any understanding of whether or not that uh, 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 that you know that constituent gas uh, is being uh, if, if that problem has been solved? Because it certainly is a problem. Well, here's my promise to you, and here's my promise to the space. You've raised a very good point, uh, and the point is uh, there are some other components uh, that are required uh, to help our friends. Uh, let me do this. Uh, let me tap my network. Let me ask a question, and uh, my promise is I'll come back, uh, and uh, I'll have an update for this space. How's that? And Fantastic. Peter, uh, Jerry, you'd, you'd asked the question before on a DM. I, I've had a chat with our chaps, and I think, Peter, you and I should have a chat about it because – Obviously, the uh, intention of uh, the Germans to find a way to have the Dutch frack for them um, will create part and parcel of that, but that won't be sufficient in terms of amounts. So we should still have a little look-see. Fully agree. Sounds great to me, Axel. Let, let's, uh, let's let Axel park. And then, uh, Peter, I have one more question for you in the DMs. Um, and then let's go to Bloke, who might have a question on this as well, if that's all right. Um, so the, que the last question that I have on, on hand is, could you elaborate a little in the construct that some countries were forced to make in paying for natural gas into Gazprom bank accounts, where, where, where those payments were immediately converted into rubles, and if that construct is actually supporting the uh, exchange rate for the ruble? All right. So um, finance, who is a contr regular contributor to this space, has done a very good brief on that previously. Uh, I can't see right now if finance is in uh, in the space here. Uh, the the short and insufficient answer is this: the more money, remember that big wow number I talked about, eight hundred and fifty million dollars a day. Europe is pumping into the Russian economy. The more foreign currency that Europe pumps into the Russian economy, uh, that supports the ruble. Uh, that increases their current account, uh, and that allows okay. Russia. Okay. Actually, is that a hot mic? Sorry, yes, we're talking about uh, colors for cars. I apologize. 
<laughs> Fair enough, Axel. Uh, the more cars with different colors that Russia sell. No, just kidding. Um, so the more money that uh, uh, that, that Europe pumps into the Russian economy, that actually supports the current account, uh, which uh, buoys the ruble and prevents a total uh, currency collapse. Um, this is it is necessary to squeeze Russia on the points we can squeeze the most. We must deny Russia the sinews of infinite cash that are supporting this war. And that is where energy comes into play. That, that would be my answer. The other point is, you know, it's a nerdy issue, but it's important from and I didn't answer it earlier. It's about, um, uh, you know, the climate agenda and, and carbon. Russia uses in many cases, not all, but in many cases, something called long-term take or pay contracts. And I'm gonna use Hungary as an example. So uh, a take or pay contract is basically, we have a contract uh, for X amount of energy. If you don't use that energy, that's tough luck for you. You still have to pay us for all of the energy that we agreed you should have used. That's a long-term taker, and that and it's long-term, so it covers many years. Why does this matter? Well, let's look at Hungary. Hungary did the right thing. Several years ago, Hungary has all of these old Soviet bloc-style communist apartments and lots of things built by the Russians that are not energy efficient. And so Hungary said, we are going to be energy efficient, and we're going to uh, we're going to put in insulation, and we're going to take all the steps necessary to make these uh, buildings more energy efficient so that we can use less gas and put less carbon into the atmosphere. High five, Hungary. Well done. And Hungary did this. And then the Russians said, oh, how cute. And then the Russians reminded the Hungarians that they had a long-term take or pay contract. So the Hungarians started using less and less and less natural gas. Uh, they started putting less carbon up into the atmosphere. And yet still they had to pay the Russians for all the gas they didn't use. This is the problem that European countries have faced for decades. The Russians have extremely complicated and very good contracts that only advantage Moscow. And if we're going to push back in the form of cutting our ties on natural gas and oil, we also need to push back against these long-term take or pay contracts that disadvantage the West and only advantage Putin. Thank you, Peter. I think that's really well put. And it's also an aspect that gets perennially ignored. And thank you so much for highlighting it. Uh, Bloke, if you have an energy question, please go ahead. And then there's one more that I just got. Bloke? <laughs> yeah, no problem. Um, thank you. Um, given my naivete on energy, this will probably be the most softball, innocent question you're going to get for the day. But um, my question is, um, first of all, I, I don't see a problem with supply of natural gas, but I see problems with transport and delivery. So my first question is, how big is the LNG market right now? And is it flexible enough to uh, meet Europe's needs? And um, I see delivery as a problem for LNG terminals in Europe. And if we did, as you said, work um, you know, on a wartime footing, how long would it take to fill that delta between you know supply and demand more specifically obviously canada and the us have lots of natural gas that you pointed out a lot of it just gets flared off but that gas would have to be delivered through pipelines to terminals and these terminals would have to you know ship to other terminals in europe 
this infrastructure have you ever uh, looked at the arithmetic of of and and it, assuming we work under work time conditions is it even possible to do this and is the market as is big enough to meet that demand right now you are that is not a uh, noob question that is a, a very sophisticated policy question uh, the answer is the lng market globally is expanding uh, Right now, there is a short-term deficit. We are not, like as of tomorrow, let's, let's play a thought experiment. Let's imagine that uh, tomorrow, Germany had its uh, floating regasification capabilities on the water, uh, and uh, we were you know, making big steps at the EU level uh, to reorientate the flows of natural gas through pipelines. That requires breaking contracts. Remember, Russia has booked up for years into advance uh, most of Germany's pipeline capacity. So, uh, you know, what do we do? We have to break a contract with this. We have to break a contract with that. Uh, so, so we've got a lot of, we've got a lot of technical issues to work through. I, I agree with you. The wartime attitude is what we need because in economic terms, that's where we are. Uh, right now, there is a delta. How long will it take to, uh, to overcome that delta? Uh, how long will it take to overcome 60 years of uh, European dependence on Russian energy? It's not going to be a week. It's not going to be a month, uh, but we can do it. Um, market forces are very powerful. Uh, and certainly here in the United States, uh, if we can return to our attitude that America is not just the arsenal of democracy, the checkbook of democracy, but we're the uh, oil and gas field of democracy, uh, then we are in a better position uh, to help Europe uh, than might otherwise happen. I think that's the safest answer and that's the most correct answer. Uh, if I del delved any deeper into these minds, uh, we'd find a few balrogs. Okay, thank you. Um, uh, basically, the, but to be clear, you're saying that the, the market for LNG right now is not big enough or flexible enough, even if the delivery capacity was there in Europe, to, to meet, fill that gap, right? And and you're further saying that the biggest problem, one of the biggest problems is contractual, right? Not infrastructure. Well, uh, let me clarify. Let me clarify, because that's a good point. I was thinking uh, from a U.S. centric point of view. Oh, no, how terrible. Um, oh, my gosh. The world is flooded with natural gas. Uh, natural gas is one of the most readily available commodities on the planet right now. Uh, it's uh, it's not an issue of lack of supply. Uh, supply. Yes, markets fluctuate. Yes, you know, you have markets get tight, markets loosen up. Uh, but look at Saudi Arabia's capacity. My God, look at Qatar, look at Australia. Uh, and these are just like the current big dogs. Uh, we could talk about African LNG. Uh, so we've got lots of supply available. The key uh, is not the amount of gas that we could burn. Uh, the key is getting it uh, into the injection points, if you can think about it in those terms, where Europeans can use that gas. And Russia has been masterful in its strategy of denying uh, competitors those injection points and the pipeline infrastructure or the truck infrastructure to move that natural gas around inside European economies. Russia has done this as a strategy. It has been focused and they have spent decades preventing us from 
providing alternatives to Russia. So when we talk about the, the near-term challenge, which is, I think, the core of your question, and it's a great one, uh, when we talk about that near-term challenge, really what we're talking about is how do we get the supplies that are available into these economies? And the answer is, wow, there's not a lot of options here. We have to move quickly to create them. And that's that's the nature of the conversation. And I, again, I would move this back to Ukraine because ultimately what we're talking about is severing a decades long relationship with Russia because we can no longer accept that the Russians are good faith actors. I knew that wasn't true. Many people in this space knew that wasn't true. But for decades, the assumption in European policy and in at times, U.S. policy was that the Russians were good faith actors, so we didn't have to worry about these problems. Well, war clarifies things very quickly. This war has uh, the escalation of this war has clarified uh, that fact, and now we have to respond and make up for decades of neglected investments that we should have made. That's the policy challenge. But I am confident with the available supplies which exist, we can achieve this goal. Thank you, Peter. And uh, I think that that's a that's Thank a you. really good point. And I want to tie it right into the next question that I got, which is, is there any validity to the idea that we are holding some sanctions back, such as those on oil transport companies and insurers, as well as the cyber capabilities in reserve to allow for a way to escalate in a response to, for example, chemical or low-yield nuclear attack, either without requiring a kinetic response or in addition to a kinetic response. And this question comes uh, on the basis of a National Security Council war game uh, about 10 years ago that involved the Russian invasion of the Baltics and how and, and the Russian nuclear first use in order to escalate, to de-escalate the conventional war with NATO. Apparently, one of the groups that was wargaming this chose not to retaliate, but to isolate Russia. And this is one of the things that came out of that. There were many war games uh, on the Baltic states. And uh, in most cases, we lost those wars in those games. Um, that's That should be a sobering thought for everyone. Um, look, I'm a hawk. I've been a hawk among hawks. Uh, if there's a room full of Russia hawks uh, and I'm in that room, the other hawks go, wow, Peter's really a hawk here. So uh, I would preface everything by saying I have I continue to be and always have been extremely hawkish uh, on Russia. That said, I think those points you raised about uh, putting these issues on the table now, uh, deploying them now, uh, these are things that should have been done prior to February 24th. Uh, so I fully endorse uh, the most aggressive posture possible so as to deny Russia the ability to sustain its war against Ukraine right now. If we are going to ensure that Ukraine wins, and that is now the policy of the, the EU, not the United States, but it is the policy of the EU, then we must do everything in our power to assist Ukraine in that. And that means doing things that we haven't yet done but should have done. And I think the, the two points that were raised were good ones and, and I fully support, but you know, full disclosure, I'm a hawk. But from, from your perspective, would you say that maybe others are holding them back for, you know, less hawkish than you, let's say, uh, are holding them back for those reasons? Or maybe is there another reason why they haven't done it yet? I think your question answers itself. Very good. Thank you, Peter. Um, uh, lastly, I have one more question here that's kind of for you, but uh, do you know anything about methane clathrates? No. Okay. Yeah. No, then I'm not going to pose the question. I, I told the questioner that you're a policy expert, not a geologist. Um, so we're, we're going to keep that. We're going to keep that back. 
uh, for that reason. Uh, and uh, the question is laughing at it. Uh, so, but clearly, I was I was right on that. Thank you so much, Peter. Now that we're out of questions for uh, for you on European uh, gas and oil, um, I would like to thank you again for your presence in this space, not just now, but for all of the tens of hours that I know that you're listening to us, uh, because it's just fantastic to have someone who is an expert on these things talk about them as opposed to saying me an amateur speculating on it isn't that cool this is why this space is so unique and special not only uh has this combined international effort come together to help our friends since you know before the war and every single day since then before the escalation of russia's current war uh, and every day since then but um uh, everyone bring it's almost a uh, the hive the benefit of a hive mind uh, everyone brings a little bit of their expertise and if someone doesn't know the answer they're honest about it they say i don't know and and we can verify facts and we can dispel russian uh fake news and everyone brings a little something everyone learns uh, and we're all better off for it so i mean thanks to the walter and for lane and i mean i just i could spend an hour thanking everyone but what you're doing is important and i I'm very glad to have shared a little bit of what I know to help our friends in Ukraine. Thank you so much again, Peter. Uh, again, Peter. And uh, if you can get the Brugel people on online uh, and we can have a big chat with them as well, together with you, I think that would be fantastic, as Axel raised earlier. All right. Uh, having said that, since there are no more oil and gas questions that I see and no more requests, uh, unless uh, Billy resisting, if you have an oil and gas question, uh, feel free to go ahead before we move on to more military topics. I will take that silence as a no. Thank you, Billy, resisting. Um, right, so a couple of pieces of news. And thank you again, Peter. It was really uh, fantastic to be able to have that uh, hour-long chat with you. Um, there has been some news of M777 howitzers being deployed in Ukraine. M777, as a reminder, are towed howitzers that the U.S. has provided in large quantities, about 90 of them, as well as 10 combined from Canada and Australia. They are apparently already in Ukraine, in the battlefield, uh, in action, which I think is, is fantastic. I think that they're actually beyond the training phase at this point, and that they're actually being, and that they're Hello. actually using them now already. Billy Hi, Billy, resisting. I have a question. Uh, sure, Billy, go ahead. Now that you've uh, well, managed to find it has to nothing to button. do with what you're talking about. May I change uh, that, the that, subject that... somewhat? You, you you may, and we can always return to what I was talking about earlier. Okay, because uh, later you guys on. obviously are much smarter than me. I'm just a regular old lady at home worried about my family and people in Ukraine. If we can take out bin Laden like we did, why can't we take out Putin? He is a sick man. He's trying to take over Europe. He's going to try to take over us. That's what he wants to do. He wants to go out being like, Oh, being so wonderful. And he's not wonderful. He's sick. All the people, he's a war criminal. Look at the people he's killed. I can't take it anymore. Most people can't take it anymore. Why can't we take him out? All right, Billy, I think that's a serious question and it deserves a serious answer. Thank you. At the end of the day, uh, Bin Laden had a much less good bunker than Putin does. I think it really comes down to that. So there, there's a few factors, but purely operationally speaking, Taking out Putin is much more difficult than taking out Bin Laden. Bin Laden had a compound in whatever that city in Pakistan was. Putin right. has a gigantic bunker deep in the Urals and another one deep in Siberia. That's a lot and harder. Blow him up. Blow him up. So that, that's the other problem. Were somebody to try to do that, 
the mutually assured destruction theory would come into would come into force, and uh, there might be a strategic nuclear exchange. And we definitely don't want that to no, happen. No, we don't want that. But you know what? If we if we do it and we bomb both of those places where he could be, and knock him out, we could. He's a war criminal. We could get everybody in NATO. Everybody in NATO is on our side. We could all do it. The United States is strong. We're stronger than them. We need to. We need to do this. He's doing awful things to people. You're quite right, Billy. He is awful. He's doing awful things. And what we really want to do is to have him tried in front of the Hague, in front of the International Criminal Court. But That's you're right. That's never going to could... happen. It's like another Trump. Well, thing. you know what? If it's um, if um, that that was said about Milosevic in the nineties, right? It took a decade. And then, uh, and then eventually he did show up in the Hague. Now he died in prison before he was uh, the trial was finished. But the same mm-hmm. thing was said about Milosevic. I would I, I would say to you, Billy, hope dies last when it comes to this. And I really want to see uh, want to see Putin's ass in that uh, docket in the Hague, uh, facing up for what he has done and what he has been doing. He will Not hide. Just... He will hide. He will never go there. Absolutely. Well. We, you we know, never, Milosevic was to supposed to hide. We need to get the oligarchs out of our country. We need to get the oligarchs out of NATO countries. And we need to turn, let them know what – they know what he's doing, but they they have their head so far up his butt because, you know, they want their money. They want to have all that stuff. They need to, like, be put in prison too. Put them in prison. They're easy to get. They're, they're in pure sight. You know what I mean? They're in pure sight. We should put them away. And then we need to spread around to the poor Russian people. Most of the Russian people don't know what's going on. They think Putin's doing a wonderful job. Let, let's this, go this back is... to simple things. Let's drop flyers in, in Russian and say, your president is a criminal. You know, and let's, let's do something. We're smart enough to do something to open up Internet lines so these people can see truly what's going on. Man, this is the one thing I'll push back on. That's the Russian the people know what's going on. Say that again, sir. Ferlaine, you, you explain it. You, you, you can do it better than I can. Uh, ma'am, the problem is that they know what's going on and the majority allow them to do it because they have been brainwashed to the point of no return. Not everyone, exactly, exactly. but some of, some of them are still decent and they are people, but... Um, if you take a look at the response within the country, um, they, yes, they are being shown some kind of propaganda on the video, but if they had had critical thinking and if they had, they still have internet, they can use VPN. They just, um, they just accept that they are being lied to and they like this lie and they like to live in this lie. Unfortunately, they just don't want to hear the truth or they accept it because they think that it's beneficial for them. It'll keep them safe. It'll keep them safe. Well, why don't we accidentally shoot some things over in their place 